Praise the Lord. Good morning. How y'all feeling? All right. Oh, my name is Pastor Damon Horton. It's a privilege and a joy to be here with you all. Uh, I've had the privilege of unpacking the Word of God, having great conversations and times of prayer uh, with the young people. And now, this uh, morning, I have the privilege and opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of our God uh, to all of us who were here this morning. Um, I ain't going to lie, it was really comforting to come here in February and not have to deal with sleet, snow. Uh, rain is okay. Uh, but when I got off the plane, it's been cold in California. Let me, let me qualify what cold in Cali is. Anything under 60 degrees is freezing to us. And so when I stepped off the plane and I had my hoodie on, I was expecting, you know, East Tennessee weather. And I walked outside, and I'm like, it's 70 degrees. Like, I was like, either Jesus is coming back or I'm jealous. And so it was the jealousy, obviously. So the reality was, man, it's been a joy and a privilege to be here with you all. Um, this morning, I'm going to be working through Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. If you're physically able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? As you're turning there, I also want to thank the sisters who have been helping me out. I have some books on sale uh, in the lobby, and our sisters have taken time to just set up the table and be there uh, to support books that help empower us to preach the gospel, uh, how to make disciples, uh, how to apply the gospel to every nuance of our marriage. Uh, all those things are in the resources available out there. And so I just want to extend my gratitude to our sisters for helping me with that. Um, as we turn our attention to the Word of God, allow me to read the Scriptures, and then we will pray and dive into the Word of God. Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, as we have read your word, it is my desire to just communicate it with clarity. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work that my words cannot, that you would change the hearts of the listeners today, including myself. I pray that as we unpack the truth and the riches of what it means to make disciples, that you would convict us and yet comfort us at the same time. I pray, Father God, for those of us who have come into this place with weary hearts and woundedness and frustrations, that they would hear the work of Christ and they would receive comfort and peace and joy. And for those of us, Lord God, that may be convicted by this message, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would woo them back to the cross and lead them to Christ Jesus. And if there are any here who don't know Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, through the proclamation of the gospel, that you would awaken their hearts and draw them to Jesus. The whole goal of our time together is to make much of you, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to transform our lives by causing us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Living in the United States of America has blessings and challenges. And one of the challenges as it relates to the Great Commission is that we see generations and generations of people that are growing further and further away from what we would call an identity in Christianity. In California, where I live, many people are what I would call pre-Christian, not post-Christian. 
living in the South in Atlanta and in North Carolina for, for four years, I recognized that the cultural Christianity in the landscape of the South has made a lot of people post-Christian, where they tried church, they were forced to go to church, they were engaged with some type of a church background, and they said, that's not for me, and they have migrated on, moving forward in their own thinking away from Christianity. So it's a post-Christian environment. But there's a generation that is rising up that is pre-Christian, where they don't have touch points from the Word of God. They don't understand who the biblical Jesus is. They may have an idea of who a false Jesus is. They may have some type of a gleaning of what the false gospel of the spirit of the age proclaims, but they have rarely ever heard the Bible. They have rarely ever heard the Word of God unpacked in a way they can understand. They have rarely ever beheld a presentation of the glorious, robust Jesus Christ that Christians know and love and seek to serve in obedience. And so then that sets us up to understand, so where, where did this crisis come from? I mean, recently this week, we saw one of, if not the greatest evangelists since the Apostle Paul, go depart to be with our Lord Jesus, Dr. Billy Graham. The reality of Billy Graham's ministry impacts me personally because my mom, who is Mexican, raised Roman Catholic, there is no separation of the two in our culture. The reality of her going to a Billy Graham crusade in Kansas City, Missouri, 1978, hearing Jesus preached for the first time in a way that she recognized she was a sinner and with the extension of an appeal and an invitation to come to Jesus, she responded and she was born again. And she is still walking with Jesus to this day. And when I look at that type of a ministry, there was all kinds of mixed emotions that I had when I woke up to the passing of Billy Graham. And I thought about the reality of all the millions of people who made professions of faith. And there was joy, but then there was sorrow. Joy in the sense that the gospel was preached, but sorrow in the sense that it didn't seem like many local churches stepped up to do the work of discipleship. Because if millions and millions of people in our context heard the gospel, made a profession of faith, but then what happened? The reality of so many people never rooting themselves in a local church, never rooting themselves in the work of discipleship. I even contrast that with even a modern phenomenon in my life, which was 9-11. I looked at how many people ran into the church the Sunday after 9-11 and then the Sunday following that, but then how attendance then shifted and dropped to the normalcy of Sunday mornings in America three Sundays after 9-11, and looking at the shallowness of the religious experience, the spiritual experience that people want, the feeling, the existentialism that they're looking and searching for, rather than a deeply devoted, passionate, long-lasting walk with Jesus. And this has set up the landscape for why the crisis that we have in our nation is one of a lack of discipleship. And when I look at that and I think about my prayers for God to do a great awakening, living in Los Angeles thinking of Billy Graham's crusade that made him the Billy Graham that we know because of his crusade in 1949 at Washington and Hill Street. Then I think of the Azusa Street revival before that. And I think of the Jesus movement before, uh, right after that. And I look at all that and I look at L.A. where it is today and I'm like, where are the disciples? Where are the disciples from all of these movements? 
This has been the focus of why we have spent time laboring in the Word of God with the young people is to let them know you can learn from the mistakes that we have made in the past, that you don't have to inherit a negligence when it comes to the work of discipleship. And so I believe the goal in communicating this passage today is this, to help us know and understand every Christian has the same job description. It's the Great Commission. Every single one of us has the same job description. For those who know Christ, it is the Great Commission. And what I'm comforted by in verses 16 and 17 is it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I'd like to add these verses to the proclamation of what people call the Great Commission because it expands it to the context to basically introduce two different types of people that met Jesus where he told them to meet them. You had the ones who were worshiping Jesus, who were ready and willing to do whatever he said, commissioning or whatever. If if he were to say, we overthrown Rome, they were ready. They had their swords. They're like, we're ready to go. Whatever you say, we're ready to see Israel brought back to her former glory. And now we're ready to see our oppressor Rome now put before Israel. There was also the aspect of those who doubted. The Greek word for doubt means to be hesitant. It's thinking about We don't know what the next step is, so we're not ready to commit. We're not ready to think through. We're not ready to go out like this other group that is worshiping Jesus. And if I were to be honest, I would probably be included with this group, the one who doubted. And then I would be wrestling with guilt and shame because I wasn't as radical and ready to ride for Jesus as the other ones who may have been raising their hands, weeping, and saying, whatever you tell us to do, we will go and do it. I would be hesitant. I would be fearful. A lot of it is because I would still be trying to figure out what all has happened in the past few weeks. Number one, I think back to when he was beat beyond recognition. Couldn't even identify him as a human being. And he's laying or hanging right there on a cross and he died. And when he died, the earth shook, the rock split, the veil in the temple split in half. This was no small thing. It would have been trending if Twitter were back in the day. And the reality of all of this I would have been like, but you were dead, and you were beaten, and then you rose three days later, and you told us to meet you at Galilee. Is anybody else tripping out over the fact that he is risen, that he actually is glorified, that he has holes to prove that that wasn't a dream or a nightmare, that it really happened, and he is right here before us? I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I don't know what step to make. Can anybody else just say the fact that he died, he rose, he's here? He even had breakfast with the disciples on the beach, eating fish and bread. Is that not tripping anybody out? Like, I would be sitting there like, can we just call for a timeout? 30 seconds, technical foul, clipping, something. Like, give me a moment to process that he was dead and he is alive. So there's two groups present. Arguably, like, there may be two groups present here today. Those who worship Jesus, who are making disciples, and those who are fearful and they're hesitant. And they're paralyzed by fear. What I love about Jesus is that he doesn't give two different messages. He gives one message of comfort to both groups. To tame the ones that might be rowdy and to encourage the ones who are reluctant. This is why he gives us the same job description. To let us know these truths. Number one, that he has all authority. In verse 18, it says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, I want to pause right here for station identification. Look at what's being said. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, Jesus took time before he ascended to the Father to give clear, precise 
directions to those who were following him. Those who were obedient to come to the mountain of Galilee, he didn't leave them hanging. He didn't leave them clueless. Look at him versus every other world leader who has tried to overthrow governments, every other world leader who has tried to impose their rule of law. They left their followers clueless, and after the followers had no leader, then they split in a myriad of different directions. Jesus knew, and he is in control of all things. And he did not leave his followers clueless. The same commission he gave over three millennia ago is the same commission that stands steady today. And Jesus is comforting them by giving them his word. This was his practice in the upper room. He spoke to them and gave them clarity. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I will bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. But don't worry, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The comforter will come. The comforter will remind you of everything that I've given you. The comforter will lead you. The comforter will bring back to your remembrance all the things that I've given you. And he will lead you in all truth. And we know that the comforter is God the Holy Spirit. And the reality of us not being left as orphans allows us to have confidence with the clarity that Jesus has given us through the content of his word. That is his pattern. He communicates with clarity so that we will not be clueless. But when he removes the idea of us being clueless, now he forces us to make a decision. Because we have received his word, we can either obey or disobey. That's your only two options. And so when we look at the text, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This word all literally means complete and total, not lacking anything. The word authority means to have absolute power and control. So the question is, who is the one that has all authority? The answer is professed clearly by Jesus. He alone possesses all authority. Daniel 7.14 says, and to him who would be the Son of Man, who is Jesus, the personification of all the Old Testament references to the Messiah, to God's forthcoming plan of redemption personified in the flesh. It is Messiah. It is Jesus. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all ethnicities, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And we bring that into dialogue with Ephesians 1.22 that says, And God put all things under subjection of his, Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then we even bring that to completion with Philippians 2, 9, 11, which says, For this reason, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth, and that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when Jesus says, I have been given all authority, he means it. Nobody can overthrow the rule of Jesus. Nobody can overthrow his work in building his church. I mean, think about it. As soon as our fathers and mothers in the Christian faith began to endure persecution, it was the goal and the attention of the people who wanted to persecute and kill and remove those who testified about the risen Jesus Christ. They wanted to remove them off of the face of planet 
earth. They have been doing it since the stoning of Stephen, and they are still doing it in our present day. But Jesus Christ pronounced in Matthew 16, upon this rock, the truthfulness that he is the Son of God. He is the fulfillment of every Old Testament passage that kept pointing Israel and the onlooking world to God's plan of redemption, that he is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. So the beauty of that is that no matter how hard the world tries, no matter how much they slander him, no matter how much they persecute his followers, no matter how many times they martyr us or they threaten us or they capture us or they kill us or they behead us and they put it on YouTube, Jesus will not stop building his church. And the good news of that is that he gives us the privilege to accompany him as he is building his church because his church is not the brick and mortar. If somebody were to drop a bomb on this location and this building would have stopped ceasing to exist, the church of Jesus Christ would still be living. We are not imprisoned to four walls and a ceiling and brick and mortar. The body of Christ is not a building. It is a body that Jesus is making up of living stones who are the souls of those who heard the gospel, which pronounces we're all guilty sinners. We are all lawbreakers. Not a single one of us has kept all 613 old covenant laws. You break one, you break them all. We have broken them all. The word of God tells us that every single one of us, from the time we were being formed in our mother's womb, according to Psalm 51.5, we had sin already woven into our genetic makeup. The reality of Psalm 58.3 says, from the womb the wicked come forth speaking lies. That means every single one of our native language is lying. No one had to teach you how to lie. You naturally do it. Jesus said in John 8, 34, that if you commit one sin, you're a slave to sin. We have all committed multitudes of sins. Therefore, we are all inherently slaves to sin. There is this guilt. There is this burden. There is this debt that every single one of us has. And if you don't think you can comprehend it, let me give it to you this way. Our nation has a national debt. And when you are born and you get that Social Security number, as an American citizen— the payoff of that debt is now on your head, and that ticker is still ticking, and it's still increasing. There is this national debt that we cannot pay off individually. We don't have the resources to pay off the trillions and trillions of dollars of debt. If we can't do that financially, what makes us think that we can do that spiritually with a debt that is eternal? We have an eternal debt, and we're finite creatures, which means we have limitations, a beginning and an end, and that eternal debt consumes us. It would almost be like if we all got into a charter bus, and we drove to the coast, and we went to the ocean, and I pulled out a cup from a local gas station, and I told you all that I was going to consume the entirety of the Atlantic Ocean in my cup. You all would think I'm mad and beside myself. And I said, no, follow me. And we go to the beach, and I go into the water, and I'm waist deep in the water. And I say, behold, I'm going to put the Atlantic Ocean in this cup. And I go down, and I come up, and I say, behold, the Atlantic Ocean. You're going to be like, you're crazy, bro. You're still waist deep in the Atlantic Ocean. It is not in that cup. You would think I'm crazy and foolish, that I'm insane, that I'm mad. I'm certifiably needing to be committed. Because I actually believe I can contain all of the Atlantic Ocean, not including the rest of the bodies of water on planet Earth, in this small, 
small, limited cup. The cup cannot contain the ocean. The ocean contains the cup. We are that cup. We are foolish enough to believe that we can pay off an eternal debt that consumes us. We are mad. We are insane. But this is where the glory of the gospel comes in. That Jesus, who is truly God, put on human flesh and became truly man. And the reality of his perfect life of obedience of all 613 laws is what brought him to the cross, to which he became a sponge. And the cup of God's wrath that hold the ocean of our debt was poured on Jesus, who is eternal. And he, being eternal, absorbed rightfully an eternal debt in our place that finite human beings could never contain. And by saying, it is finished, he said, I have absorbed it down to the last drop and I surrender my life. On their behalf, I die so that they may live. He was buried and he rose from the grave. And the reality of him rising out of that grave shows that he defeated death, hell, the grave, sin, and Satan. Because Satan had a weapon that held our entire human race hostage, and it was called death. And when Jesus rose out the grave and he defeated death, he took that weapon out of the hands of Satan and he broke it. And now, no demon in hell, Satan himself, nobody from any other faith, philosophy, or ideology, and not even stubborn, carnal, spiritually immature Christians can stop Jesus from building his church. And those who embrace his work on their behalf, they are the living stones. They are the church. They are the ones that receive the Great Commission as their job description. So he has all authority. And now, in response of obedience, we are to go to all nations. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In the Greek, there's only one verb, and it's modified by three different participles. Go, baptize, and teach all modify what it means to do this one verb, make disciples. Go is written in such a way that we're best to interpret it as, as you are going, as you are moving through life, as you are living your life, you are to be making disciples. It's not something that we control when we start doing. It's the reality that if I am born again and I am breathing, I am qualified to make disciples. This is something that should drive the rhythm of our lives. Just like a car needs gasoline, or if you knew school, electricity, whatever you need to go, Jesus fuels you with the Holy Spirit. Go. Live your life as you go to school, as you go to work, as you go home, as you go to the gym, as you go to the grocery store. The filter in which you view the world should be through the eyes of a missionary. And the mission field is not just across the sea. The mission field is across the street. The mission field is your home if there are non-believers that live in your home. That means if you're married to a non-believing spouse, your home is the mission field. If your children are not believers, or youth, if your parents are not believers, that is a mission field. Your school, your place of work, the neighborhood association you're a part of, the athletic association you're a part of, the mission field is defined as anywhere human beings live, move, and have their being, and they do not know Jesus Christ, that is the mission field. We have to stop thinking that I do missions by writing a check and sending it to the people over there in places that I have no interest of ever going. The reality of missions is here, it is now. And if you can be faithful to Jesus now, just like I told the young people last night, you can be fearless for no matter where he calls you in the future. The reality of that is what it means to live as a missionary, 
to have the eyes of a missionary constantly seeing who can I share the love of Jesus with, who can I share the gospel with, who can I share my life with, and at the same time have the heart of an evangelist to communicate and pronounce the glorious truths of Jesus. When he says go, he is giving us, the church, his permission slip. Just like when we were in school and we had a field trip coming up, the teachers or the administrators would give us that little piece of paper. That little piece of paper without a signature was meaningless. But when your parent or your guardian wrote their name and they dated it, they signed saying that I am giving my child or the child that I am legal guardian of the permission to go on this short-term field trip. And the reality of having that piece of paper allowed us to get on the bus. It allowed us to not go to, to, to stay in the classroom. And if you did not have the permission slip, you had one of two choices. You stay at school or you sneak on the bus and deal with the consequences when you get caught. And the reality is, Jesus is saying, I have all authority. My name is your permission slip. There is nowhere you can go on this earth that is not mine. I am giving you access to this entire globe to go and make me known. Nobody can stop you. Nobody can take away your permission slip that has been given directly by me. That's the God we serve. That's the commission we're called to. Our going is not arbitrary, but it's focused and intentional. We are called to go to the lost, those who don't know Jesus. Like, literally, if you live with non-believers as you're leaving today, you are intentionally going back to your home, which is a mission field. So live as the missionary God has called you. The reality of that is found in your job description as he's saying go. It's not to make converts or it's not to make educated sinners. It is to go and make disciples of every ethnicity. In order to be a disciple, somebody has to place their trust in Jesus Christ after hearing the gospel. We see this in Romans 1.16 and Romans 10.9-15. One must place God and his word as the umpire of their heart, according to Colossians 3, 15 and 16, which means that he blows the whistle and calls us foul based on our carnality or our sinfulness. God's word and God the Holy Spirit are the umpire of our lives, telling us when we are out of bounds, telling us when we commit a foul. One who seeks to hear God's word, understand the word of God, and obey it according to James 1, through 25. This is what a disciple of Jesus looks like. This is a follower of Christ. So one who makes disciples shows the one who they are discipling what it looks like to place God's word as the umpire of their life. At the same time, to hear the word of God and seek to understand it and obey it. Biblical discipleship is intimate, which means it is the unveiling of your life to the person that you are wanting to grow in grace with. It's intimate. It means that you express to them in vulnerability your sin struggles. It means the embarrassment that you carry with you, that you try to keep secret, you open it up to them to say, this is how God is working in my life, present tense. One of the strongest things that challenged me early in my walk with Jesus when I was 15 and 16 years old is that when I would hear preachers talk, they only talked about sin before they knew Jesus or when they first came to Jesus. And I was led to believe that everyone who communicated the word of God did not wrestle present tense with sin. And that led me to believe 
believe in my immaturity, number one, as a young teenager, number two, as a new Christian, that I'll never be as good as that person. I'll never be as good as them because I struggle with sin every day. And I remember praying that prayer when I was 16 years old. If you ever give me the grace to preach, God, keep me from ever putting my sin in the past tense only so that the hearer can be comforted by me, only a mouthpiece, only a microphone from you, that I still wrestle with sin every single day. That the same cross that I pronounce, I have to fall on my face before every morning declaring my need for Jesus. That I have to ask God to show me my sinfulness that my pride is trying to hide. That I have to ask God that those that I'm in discipleship relationship with, that they would have the courage and the boldness to call me out on my sin. If they don't, and if I don't have those people in my life, I will live in ignorance and blissful carnality, thinking I'm good with Jesus. And the whole time Jesus is saying, there are sin issues in your life, my child, that I'm trying to speak to you about. But because of the hardness of your ears, the blindness of your eyes, and the hardening of your heart, you are not receiving rebukes. This is real Christianity. This is the Christianity that the world will marvel at. Because they're meeting Christians that say, let me beat you to the punch. Here's my sin. Here's my struggle. Here's my deficiency. There is no holier than thou with me. But in all of my brokenness, my Savior makes me beautiful. In all of my sin struggles, the idols that I run to in moments of crisis, in moments of pressure, in moments of temptation, who I turn to, what I turn to outside of Jesus, those are my idols. And we tell the world, this is what it looks like to be in process with a God who is patient, with a God who loves, and with a God who never changes his standard for holiness no matter what the culture or the cults of law say in their day. This is the Christianity that we are called to rebrand before a nation. Before a whole Bible belt of the South, this is the Christianity that Jesus is calling his followers to live out. And by living this out, it may sow some churchgoers who have known church since the 40s, since the 50s, since the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or in this new millennium, they've known church that whole time, but they've never known Jesus. Their faith is nominal at best. Jesus does not know their name. This is the call to repentance that a call to discipleship mandates. These are the things that make discipleship intimate. Do you know Jesus? There is nothing more intimate than that question. Do you know Jesus? Not do you know of him. Not can you communicate his narrative. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you hungry and thirsty for his righteousness to cover the guilt and shame of your sinfulness? Discipleship is intimate, but it is also intentional which means we're going to have to carve out time. We're going to have to say no to preferences in life in order to make those investments into other believers, to spur each other on to love and good deeds. It's the Hebrews 10 passage. Do not forsake the assembling of the brethren. Gather, spur each other on with loving and good deeds. You know what I love about that passage is that it's not time sensitive. The author of Hebrews didn't say, 
for two hours on a Sunday, don't forsake your assembling together. No. That means Christianity is not a faith that we compartmentalize to two hours on a Sunday. It means that the gospel consumes the whole of our life, so it consumes the whole of our day, it consumes the whole of our week, the whole of our month, the whole of every breath that we breathe on this side of eternity. We are to be agents of breathing the gospel grace into our environments, not just for a few hours on a Sunday, not just during small group, not just during midweek Bible study, but all of those things included with every other time that we are not inside the four walls of a designated church building. Discipleship should be the DNA for every believer in Jesus Christ. And discipleship, in addition to being intimate and intentional, it should also not be indefinite. Meaning there should be a time that as you walk in discipleship, and I would say discipleship is a maturing believer, present tense, taking the hand of an immature believer, and they walk in maturity together for a season. And you raise them from a pupil to a peer, and then you challenge them to go and do the same, to get a pupil, and you keep doing that. You don't sever the relationship after they're your peer. You continue to grow with them, but you're challenging them to multiply what you've done for them into the lives of others. If we did this over the past few hundred years in our country, I don't think we would be in the current state of affairs that we're in. If people believed the whole gospel and didn't reduce it to just fire protection from the lake of hell, but if they said the gospel speaks to racism as equally as it speaks to sexism, as equally as it speaks to my woundedness and abuse and systemic brokenness, the gospel speaks to my idols, it speaks to my hobbies, it speaks to my sex drive, it speaks to my diet, it speaks to everything showing that I need Jesus in every area of my life. If it really consumed us, and we live this in community, then I truly believe there would not be as many millennials and Gen Z that are the rising of the nuns in our nation. Yes, there will always be those who reject the gospel because of the hardness of their hearts. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there would be a way different rhythm of life from the people of God in America than what we're seeing today. I am a part of that crisis. I am a part of that problem. But the good news is, is that we can repent from that former way of living. And we can walk in the fruits of repentance by walking and striving to live in obedience to the Great Commission. Disciples of Jesus do not withhold discipleship or the gospel from people who are different from them, whether gender, socioeconomic, or ethnic. The reality of Jesus' finished work is tells us in Ephesians 2 that he is our chief cornerstone. And the whole role of a cornerstone is to bring two opposing walls into itself. Jesus' finished work, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his literal, visible, and physical resurrection, his ascension, and his anticipated second return have all carved out this opportunity for those who were Jewish and non-Jews, which is every other ethnicity, according to the Word of God, into this new work called the church. That means Jesus is not prejudiced. That means Jesus 
has obliterated every wall of division that sinful human beings could carve to segregate ourselves from each other. The gospel's power must be made visible to show that as Jesus has destroyed these walls of separation, we do not counter his work by rebuilding them. We keep them in the rubble that they lay as a reminder that we are not part of the world. We are a part of the kingdom of God. And if we live this out, then the onlooking world would stop asking the question, what do we do? They would stop saying it on news outlets whenever race riots happen. I don't have the answer. They should be able to point to the body of Christ who makes the kingdom of God visible by our presence on earth if we're living in obedience and say, we don't have the answer, but the people of Jesus have the answer. And they've been living it. It sounds lofty, it sounds romantic, but it's realistic if we obey the commandments of Scripture. Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism means to immerse something or someone into something else. The Greek word for in literally means into. So all believers are baptized into the body of Christ when we embrace Jesus Christ as Lord after we've heard the gospel. But we are also baptized into the commitment of discipleship. See, there's a spiritual baptism that takes place when we embrace Jesus as Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greek, whether slave or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. So the moment that we embrace Jesus as Lord, we turn from our sins. We believe that his work is all that was done and necessary to remove the guilt and shame and stain of our sin. And we are given a new life in Jesus Christ. We are baptized, fully immersed into his body we are part of the church and the physical symbol of baptism that we celebrate in the church is of a couple of things number one it signifies that we are dead in sins and as Christ was buried we were buried as Christ rose we rise and the reality of that says this is a public profession of an inward reality that I have been changed. I was once dead, I am now alive. I was once lost, I am now found. I was once outside of the family of God, now I have been adopted into the family of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. God the Father is my legit father now. But it's also a burden of responsibility on the onlookers who are a part of the body of Christ. Because as we see this new soul that is brought into the kingdom of God through gospel proclamation. What we are saying is that by watching this, we bear witness before God and each other and you, the new believer in Jesus, that we are immersed into the discipleship of your soul. So if you fall through the cracks, that's on us. Because we receive you into our family and we love you and we will do whatever it takes to see you grow more in love with Jesus. Inasmuch as we would not prayerfully be so heartless that if you were to come here on a Sunday morning and see a baby that was dropped off, that we would just not walk by the baby, but we would engage the baby and seek to help the baby and seek to see the child nourished, then why can't we have that same urgency and passion when somebody is drawn by God the Father to faith to say, let us all collectively as the family of God pour into them to make them a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are baptized into that work as the local church. That's what it means. And as I close and the worship team comes up, we're comforted to know that he has all authority 
We go to all nations, and he's with us for all ages. Jesus says that we are to teach the disciples that we are making all that he has commanded. There are spiritual commands and there are social commands. We are not to divorce the two. Spiritual commands that Jesus gives us in the scriptures is to repent, to turn from our life of sin and to follow him. To love the Lord with our whole heart and our whole being. To follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, to not covet, and to await his second coming. Those are just just a few of the spiritual commands he's given. But he also gives social commands that we must teach and we must model to obey. Things like keep your word. Don't make fake oaths. Don't make fake commitments when you don't have the intention to keep the word. Something as simple as, oh, I'll pray for you when you have no intention to pray for the person. Don't lie. Don't say that. That's a social command. That is what we are look, that's what we're supposed to look like when we are followers of Christ. The disciple says, I will keep my word. And as much as I can, I will pray for you. In addition to that, love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Honor your parents. Honor the covenant of marriage as God has ordained it and instituted. Pay your taxes. Give to the poor. Forgive others. All of these things socially will be lived out when spiritually we have been born again. The reality then, Jesus says, I'm with you to the end of the age. Jesus promises to be with us for the whole of every day. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The way that's written in the Greek is five negatives in a row, which is an absolute guarantee that he will never leave you nor forsake you. So the call today is this. Do you know Jesus? Not do you know of him. Not are you a member of this church. Do you know Jesus? Have you exchanged your life of sin for the righteousness of Jesus that he freely gives? He never turns us away when we come to him. And if you do know Jesus, what does the legacy of your disciple making look like? Can you point to a few? Can you point to dozens? Can you point to anybody that you can say, that is a child in the faith that I have raised up and they are living and making disciples and these are the ones that I've poured into. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you can't think of such a legacy, then today is the day that I call you to repent. I call you to repent. Exchange the brokenness and the comforts and the things that have prohibited you from making disciples and renew a commitment to Jesus to now go and make disciples. Be comforted by the fact that our God is gracious and merciful. I'll be the first to tell you I have not been as faithful as I should have been and could have been in the 22 years that I've been walking with Jesus. Many years, many days, many months have been wasted in pure selfishness with no kingdom investments made on my behalf to other saints in the faith. And God is merciful. And every day that I'm given grace to wake up is an opportunity for me to make disciples. Let's pray. As we have heard from your word, I pray that you would bring comfort, Holy Spirit. For those that don't know Christ, draw them, I pray, Father, to him this moment. For those that do know Christ, and they have been making disciples, and they have been faithful, Lord, give them the grace to keep being faithful. We need more models of disciple makers in our local churches in this country. And for those, Lord God, who struggle with discipleship, or maybe they've never been discipled, Lord, allow them to run to you to be comforted 
and then allow them to be confident in the work of Jesus and his grace so that they can leave this place and walking in obedience to go and make disciples. Intersect their lives with people that will pour into them or intersect their lives with people that they can pour into so that we can see the gospel transferred from one generation to the next as you continue your promise to build your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.